Well, good morning. Uh, it's good to see you this morning. This will be fine, I guess. Uh, you know, it's good to see you here because I know this morning uh, there's lots of other places you could be. I mean, you could be uh, playing golf or sleeping late or, uh, as I saw this morning, you could even be going to a yard sale or having a yard sale. But you got yourself and maybe your family together to come here instead. Why did you do that? What I'd like you to think about today is our reasons for worshiping God. Why it is that we offer that up to Him. And to start off, oh, how did those get there? Well, these are two of our grandchildren, uh, the most beautiful grandchildren in the world, I have to say. This is uh, uh, Matthew and Sarah Beaker. And I guess I have to say that this is definitely two of the reasons that Jan and I have to thank and praise God. Um, And if you want more pictures of them, uh, just let me know. (laughs) I can probably provide about 300. Uh, well, back to the message here. Uh, besides grandchildren, why do we worship? Well, hopefully we come to worship for something more than this it's a sense of duty or to make yourself feel better. And I would suggest to you that the main reason that we should worship God is simply that he deserves it. He deserves worship. I mean, even in in creation, there are some things that are so awe-inspiring that if we didn't praise him or appreciate them, uh, it would it would be an act of stupidity uh, not to respond in that way. <clears throat> well, the Psalms give us a model for praise and worship. They give us reasons for worshiping God. They give us reasons that are based in his deeds and in God's attributes. Things like his power, his omniscience, which means he knows everything. His glory, his eternity, he he has always been and always will be. Uh, His mercy, his kindness, his patience. And I have to confess to you that there are some of God's attributes that I like better than others. How about you? <laughs> uh, I really like his mercy and his generosity and his patience and his kindness. Uh, but my flesh is is not so comfortable with some of his attributes, such as his hatred of sin. <laughs> um, but there's an even deeper reason than these, as important as these are, to worship God. And that is God's perfect holiness and righteousness. Did you notice a theme in the worship songs this morning? Uh, I asked Alex last week if we could include holy, 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 and we had holy in every single worship song. (laughs) I thank you for that. I think it was a good way to focus us on what God is like. But holiness... can be comforting, but God's holiness can also be 
discomforting, can it? I think we find that in the scriptures. Uh, one day, a man approached Jesus with a question. And it says, this is in Luke 10, or Luke 18. A certain ruler asked him, asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replied, Why do you call me holy? No one is good but God alone. Well, why do you think Jesus asked him this? Why did Jesus say that? Was was Jesus saying that he's, he was not good? No, I think we have to, to understand for all the claims that Jesus made about himself, what Jesus was pointing out to this man, that unless he was already recognizing that Jesus is God, which is pretty clear he was not, that this man's idea of goodness was way too weak. Because Jesus said, only God is really good. <clears throat> and if his idea of weakness, of God's goodness, is too weak, uh, I know that that's true for me, and I suspect it's true for you too. <clears throat> a number of years ago, for the first time of many times that I was reading a book by C.S. Lewis called Paralandra, which I highly recommend to you if you haven't read it, there was a passage in there that got me thinking about why we worship God. Now, let me set this up a little bit. In Paralandra, the hero is a man named Ransom. And the main villain is a brilliant scientist called Weston. And they have ended up on the planet of Paralandra, what we call Venus. And C.S. Lewis uses this basically to deal with the whole issue of temptation, uh, how it is that uh, <clears throat> an unfallen uh, man and woman could be brought to be tempted to rebel against God. And it's a fascinating book about that. But in this part, this passage here, Weston, <clears throat> the scientist, <clears throat> is confronting uh, Ransom, and telling about how he has come come away from being a strict atheist in the sense that he didn't believe in anything that was uh, immaterial or spiritual, and that he is trying to explain to Ransom the changes in his life. And he says, I've become conscious, now this is the Western, the villain, I've become conscious that I'm a man set apart, why did I do physics? Why did I discover the Western rays? Why did I go to Malacandra? It is the force that has pushed me on all the time. I'm being guided. I know now that I am the greatest scientist the world has yet produced. I've been made so for a purpose. It is through me that the spirit itself is at this moment pushing me onto its goal. <clears throat> Look here, said Ransom. One wants to be careful about this sort of thing. There are spirits and spirits, you know. What? said Weston. What are you talking about? And Ransom says, I mean a thing might be a spirit and not be good for you. <clears throat> 
And then the Weston says, But I thought you agreed that spirit was the good, the end of the whole process. I thought you religious people were all out for spirituality. What is the point of asceticism, fast and celibacy and all of that? Didn't we agree that God is the spirit? Don't you worship him because he is pure spirit? Good heavens, no, said Ransom. We worship him because he is wise and good. There's nothing specially fine about simply being a spirit. The devil is a spirit. And we think about the attributes of God, like his power and his glory. Satan has a counterfeit for many of these things. He's described as an angel of light. But what he cannot counterfeit in an unbelievable way is the holiness and righteousness of God. Well, another book I've been reading lately is The Confessions of St. Augustine. It's a book that I've seen for years, and I keep thinking, one of these days I'm going to have to read it. So I got down recently and started reading, and it's it's fascinating. Of course, St. Augustine was a famous saint from about the A.D. 400. Um, He's considered one of the greatest uh, fathers, church fathers. Uh, He's honored by basically all the different branches of Christianity. And in this book, Confessions, St. Augustine gets very detailed and honest and frank about how deep he was immersed in sin before his conversion. Thank you. You know, before he was converted, he admitted that he he really loved to sin. He was even proud of his sin. Uh, Then he goes on to describe later how he came to see the righteousness and holiness of God. And this opened his eyes to his own miserable condition of his soul. And then this led him to repentance. Well, early in Jesus' earthly ministry, we have an account of Simon Peter confronting or interacting with Jesus, and Simon Peter begins to get the same understanding about himself. And this is found in Luke chapter 5. When Jesus had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down the nets for a catch. And Simon answered, now try to read between the lines and think of what Simon's attitude is here. Master, we've worked hard all night and we haven't caught anything. Now, he was a professional fisherman. Jesus was not a professional fisherman. What was he? He was a carpenter. What do carpenters know about fishing? But Peter wanted to say, but because you say so, I'll let down the nets. Can you kind of hear him say, all right, I'll just, I'll just humor him and do what he says. Well, when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. 
I am a sinful man. His idea toward Jesus changed very quickly when he saw that what Jesus told him was correct, was right. That he saw that Jesus knew things beyond what an ordinary man would see. Peter knew that he was in the presence of someone who was holy. Now, some of the Old Testament prophets had the same reaction when God revealed himself to them. And they, they saw themselves as unworthy. <clears throat> well, we talk about the holiness of God. What does holy mean? What does holiness mean? Well, the biblical scholars tell us <clears throat> that the word holiness, the basic meaning there is that, he, that someone is set apart. We're set apart. Now, in the case when we talk about God being set apart, what does that mean? Well, at least part of what it means, we know generally it means God's purity, but it means that the level of God's goodness is set apart, totally set apart from any level of goodness that we can see in his creation. That his perfect, his righteousness, his his justice, his his beauty, uh, his purity, is absolutely set apart on a different level from, uh, certainly from anything in creation, and far ahead of any, even of the people that we might think, well, that's a really a good man. Well, you say, but aren't all believers said to be redeemed? Aren't we said to be justified and declared righteous? And that's true. Uh, sanctification, another word for holy is that we're sanctified, set apart. And it does mean to be set apart to God. But this is a process for us. My sanctification is not finished yet. You may have noticed. Uh, people who know me well know that very well. And yours is not, set, not finished either. We have been redeemed. We have been delivered completely from the penalty of sin if you were a believer in Jesus Christ. But we have not yet been delivered completely from the presence of sin. And that's something that is ongoing. So if we have a problem understanding that, remember that the Apostle John said in First John, he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So we need to recognize that. And it's not just a trivial thing. <clears throat> it's real easy for us to think, well, yeah, I'm, I'm a sinner. Everybody's a sinner, but it's not a big deal. <clears throat> but let me ask you this. Have you ever had the type of glimpse of God's holiness that you, made you aware of just how damaged your own soul is? You know, if... If we never see the deadly seriousness of our sin, it's going to be very easy to take for granted God's mercy and God's grace towards us. And that would be a tragedy. I'm saying this not to make you feel bad. I'm saying this so that you will be in a place to really rejoice over what God has done. Well, Paul also tells us what the purpose of God's mercy is. We find this in Romans chapter 2. 
Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Now, what is repentance? Repentance is more than just being sorry that your sin got found out. <laughs> you think about <clears throat> uh, there's, uh, one of the, America's funniest home videos. I remember one that showed somebody had, with video, uh, it's like his five-year-old son who snuck up and got into the cookie jar, and he's biting the cookie, and then the father said, hey, uh, Danny, what are you doing? And he looked up, <laughs> and he saw that he was on videotape, and he suddenly burst out in tears. <laughs> that was one kind of repentance. <laughs> he was really sorry he got caught. But true repentance is more than that. True repentance is seeing at least in part, because we don't repent perfectly, I don't think, but it's seeing in part how gross our sin is and then turning away from it. Like I say, this is not to make us miserable, to lead us to a place where we can rejoice. Well, today we'll be receiving communion. And in communion, Paul teaches us to focus on one thing in particular. And what is that? We're to focus on the death of Jesus Christ. Why do you think that is? Why should we be focusing on the death of Jesus Christ? Why not focus on the resurrection? Paul teaches in other places, if the resurrection is not true, then our faith is pointless and it's in vain. So why focus on the death of Christ? Well, let me ask you another question. If God could righteously and justly forgive us apart from Christ's death, if God was, was ready to forgive us apart from Christ having to die on the cross, and yet he sent his son to die on the cross, what would that be saying about God? that God would put his son through an unnecessary torture and sacrifice if he could have forgiven us apart from that. It would make God cruel, make God sadistic even, that he would do that. But we have to see then that the, the death of Christ, it's proof of how deadly serious our sin is that such a terrible price had to be paid. You know, we, we Protestants, when we show a cross, we prefer to, to have a cross that is empty. And what does the empty cross testify about? It testifies that Christ has resurrected. And that's good. And that's a good way of responding to the cross, to see that Christ is resurrected. But I think that there's also maybe a place for a crucifix. you know the difference between a cross and a crucifix? A crucifix is a cross that has an image of Christ hanging on the cross. And Protestants typically don't use crucifixes. And maybe it's because the reaction is some people would see crucifix as a kind of a magic thing. But if a crucifix can help me to really think about the price that was paid 
for my forgiveness, then I think it could be a good thing. It's not a magic charm if it's used in that way. Well, it's not just in the context of communion that the scriptures teach us to focus on the death of Christ. <clears throat> there are a number of other examples here in First Peter. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Or in 1 Corinthians, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Or Romans 5, where Paul says, But God demonstrates or proves his own love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. All this focuses, all this focus on the death of Christ has to do with an attribute of God. The focus on the death of Christ is a focus on the righteousness of God. God's holiness, we got two words that have very similar meaning, holiness and righteousness. Remember now, God's holiness means that God, he is set apart. When it applies to us, it means that we're set apart for God's purpose. When it applies to God, it's set apart that his standard of perfect righteousness is higher than anything in creation. But the term righteousness, this is a term which refers to God's justice, his perfect justice. There's no injustice that will ever come from God. God is perfectly just. He will never be unjust. And it is justice that sends an unrepentant and unredeemed person to hell. It is just. It's not unjust. And that's that's a hard thing for us to grab sometimes. We think, well, how could God do that? But it's clear, it's very clear in Scripture that to rebel and to reject this, this payment that God has made for our sin. The scripture in Hebrews says there's no other offering for sin. What more could God do than to send his own son to pay for our sin? And if a person will reject that and refuse to receive what God has offered, he has nothing else to offer. And so it would be unjust for this person to get anything other than what they deserve. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. So it's very righteous and just. For someone to receive that payment. But to receive mercy without the payment, for us to receive mercy from God apart from that payment, would be injustice. If if somebody had committed a terrible crime in the court, and they just said to the judge, you know, I'm sorry I did that. The judge says, well, okay, you're sorry. We'll let it go. We would say that that's a corrupt judge, that he has not done what's right. So for God to acquit us apart from the payment being made, the penalty being paid for our sin would have been unjust. So do we receive justice from God? God never does injustice. So when we receive forgiveness, do we receive injustice from God? 
No, that would make God injustice. What we receive from God when we receive mercy and grace is non-justice. <laughs> non-justice. I'm glad that I don't receive justice from God because I would be in big trouble. I receive instead of justice, I receive His mercy, but it's not injustice because that payment has been made. And this is what is called God's grace. There's another passage that we don't always connect with communion, but it tells us more about how we should respond to Christ's death. It's found in Philippians. And actually this is... It was it's thought to be an early hymn that was sung by the church. And it's a, a hymn that would teach. And that's one of the things I like about the good old hymns. Not all the old hymns are good, but a lot of the old, good old hymns are very rich in what they teach us. And holy, holy, holy is one of them. Well, this was a hymn, and it, and it goes like this. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. But you know, if I have the idea that my sin is not so bad, I mean, after all, there are plenty of people worse than me. Aren't there a lot of people worse than you that you know? But if I have that attitude, then the Scriptures say I put up a barrier to really receiving the grace of God. It's called self-righteousness. And Peter tells us, says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Would you rather be opposed by God, or would you rather receive His grace? <laughs> the way is through humility. Now let's look at a familiar passage on communion, the one that I usually quote every time I bring a communion message in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul writes this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink, as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. <clears throat> but a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Two points I'd like to have you note here. One, the bread and the cup point to what? The body and the blood of Christ. The body and the blood of Christ focuses on what? 
and the death of Christ, the sacrifice that he made. Another point is, Paul says, do not, uh, warns us against receiving this in an unworthy manner. Well, what does a worthy manner mean? Well, I suggest it does not mean that we think that we're good enough so that we're worthy to receive this sacrifice. Instead, to receive it, we receive it as Peter has said, we receive it with humility. And I think in this case, certainly humility would include uh, making no excuses. It would include a sincere gratitude. And it would include an attitude of repentance, wanting to turn away from that sin. And another very important passage on communion is found in Hebrews chapter 10. And this will be a number of verses. We'll start with 17b, where God says, Their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. And where these things have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. In other words, what... There's no other sacrifice that's going to cover our sin apart from what Christ has done. Now, remember, we just read in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul said, he quoted the Lord who said, do this in remembrance of me. In this passage, it says, there's sin and lawless acts I will remember no more. And the the root word for remember in both these cases is is the same word. So how could it... How could uh, how can we interpret what this word really means then? Well, remembering cannot be just simply the same thing as recall, as mental recall. Because God says, I will, if there's sin and lawless deeds, I'll remember no more. <clears throat> I've heard people say, well, God is absent-minded. I think that's a mistake. <laughs> because Scripture says God is omniscient. God doesn't forget anything. For God to say, I will remember it no more, is not the same thing as God saying, I forgot it. If God forgot it, then God wouldn't be omniscient anymore. There would be something that God didn't know. The word remembrance is something a lot deeper than just mental recall. Remembrance means to to take something into account and to apply it. God knows that we sin. He's not, but He's because of the payment that Christ made. He does not have to take that into account and apply the payment to us. And in the same way, when we think about do this in remembrance of me, it's not simply saying, "Well, I need to remember that Christ died for me." It's that we take that into account and we apply that to our lives to do this in remembrance of me. So, when I remember this, we see that God can be righteous and forgive the guilty. That's us. And not in this way, remember our sin. Apply that to us. Well, going on in Hebrews 10, there's some other important things that it teaches us. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, 
having our heart sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. This tells us, and he says, that we enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. This tells us that the blood of Christ is the only reason we can come into the presence of a holy and righteous God. It would be very presumptuous for us to think, well, I'm just going to barge in to the Holy of Holies. You, know, you, can't, you, you can't even barge into your boss's office <laughs> you know, or the president's office. You would never do that. So how do we come into the presence of the infinite creator, holy God? We come into his presence with the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And that's what we can be thinking about as we receive communion. By the way, does this only apply to when we're in a communion service? I suggest when we come to God in our prayer closet, we still only come to the presence of the Lord because of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. He is the one who gives us access. What an amazing thing. I heard, I saw in the news yesterday, you may have seen this too, that there was a couple in California that was someone came into their home and murdered them and stabbed them to death. They had two other young children in the house that witnessed this. And so the man and the woman were killed, but under California law, it was not considered a double homicide, it was a triple homicide. Why was that? The woman was pregnant. So under California law, if someone kills a pregnant woman, they're guilty of two murders, which is ironic because under California law, you can commit abortions very easily. Well, what's the difference between a child who is aborted and a child who is killed when the mother is killed? Under their law, there's one difference. One is wanted and one is not wanted. When we come into the presence of God, as those who have no right in ourselves to come into his presence, we can come because God says, you are wanted. I want you... What a blessing that God wants us so much that he's in his son. Well, there's some more verses in Hebrews that tell us what should be the response. What difference should we expect this privilege to make? Hebrews Chapter 10, verse 23 through 25. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. I see here at least two effects. That receiving communion 
with the right attitude should affect. One is going to affect our relationship with each other. It'll deepen our relationship, deepen our love for one another. Uh, If you receive communion in a worthy manner, as Paul says, it's going to strengthen your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Another effect that it'll have, it'll motivate you to walk in those good works that God has prepared beforehand, that you should walk in them to love and good deeds. So in a few minutes, we'll be receiving communion. <clears throat> the way that we're going to do it um, here is that the, <clears throat> the ushers <clears throat> will come forward and pass out the bread. And I ask you to hold that and, and just stay in your uh, in the pew. <clears throat> and they will come in and they'll pass out the cup. And I ask you to hold those two until everyone has the bread and the cup. <clears throat> now, this is... This is an ancient method of doing communion. It's not the only way to do it, but it's one that I find very uh, edifying. When everyone has received the cup and the bread, then we'll stand and hold it together, and I'll offer up a prayer as we come into his presence, and then we'll eat and drink. And then I'm going to invite you to do what, The writer of Hebrews talks about the offering up the fruit of the lips to give praise to God. After you have partaken, let's have a a short time of short sentence words of worship and praise. This is not a time for prayer requests, not time for asking God for something, but it's a time to offer up to him the reasons, like the psalmist said, what are the reasons that we worship and praise him? So say it out loud, because if you say it out loud, then we can all join in and lift that up together. And after we do that for a short time, then I will offer a concluding word of prayer at that time. So if the ushers um, will be ready to bring that forward, I just would ask that we take a, a moment now just to be quiet and to prepare our hearts for receiving communion.